Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. My guest today is Robert Inlow, President and CEO of EdChoice. Before the formation of EdChoice in 2016, Robert was an integral part of the Milton and Rose Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice from its launch in 1996. Oh, wow, going all the way back pre-Y2K. He has served as a fundraiser, projects coordinator, vice president, and executive director prior to being named the president and the CEO of the foundation in 2009. Under his leadership, EdChoice has become one of the nation's most respected and successful advocates for educational choice, working in dozens of states to advance parental freedom in education by disseminating research, undertaking training, sponsoring seminars, conducting advertising campaigns, and investing in ongoing community leaders. Robert, thank you for joining the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. You know, it's almost 30 years in back in America and back in this industry of education reform coming from social work prior to that. So dealing with homeless men and women, it's been a very interesting 30 years, 30 plus years in working in education reform. Well, 27 years, actually. You know, it's really funny that you read people's bios and you never know where they come from. You never know like what they've done and it starts to add up after a while, right? So like, you know, when people introduce me and they go through some of this stuff, I don't have what you have going on, but you start to feel like, first of all, it sounds like a eulogy. Like, <laughs> hey, don't, don't eulogize me while I'm here. But the thing that I like about it is it humanizes those of us that do education advocacy work because it's often depersonalized in the interactions that people have when they disagree on education policies. So it's good to hear where people come from and the work that they've put in. I wanted to have you on the show to talk about school choice because, you know, I've been going through some things with school choice and my ideas about school choice have been emerging and radicalizing and changing in different ways. But you wrote a very concrete piece that we could talk about that is a very solid starting point that let's move all the noise out of the way and talk about there have been a series of laws that have passed in multiple states that have increased educational choice programs, voucher programs, or ESA programs specifically. And you wrote a piece in Education Next called Success of Educational Choice Laws Will Depend on Implementing Them with Excellence. So, Robert, tell me, one, why did you write this? Like, what's the big story here? What's your addition to the discussion in writing this piece? Why did I write the piece in Ed Next? One in seven kids in America with the new programs are now available for choice. It's been a dramatic increase across the country. I mean, a massive expansion. It's been years in the making, right? So it's great that we have these choices. Now, you've always had choice if you've had money in America. We all know that, right? But now choice is being extended really across all platforms and across all types of income levels. And so the question is, is what are we going to do with it, right? So once you got it, is it going to be utilized well? Are, is the government going to be a good actor or bad actor in the implementation of these things? And are the advocates going to understand the value and importance of implementing successfully, right? And we have to define, Chris, what we mean by successfully. And for me, in the first and most important definition is it has to be defined based on what parents' wants and parents' needs are, right? If we define success as a government-run program that doesn't allow anything bad to ever happen in the world, then we're never going to change the way education has been running in America for the last 200 years, right? So we 
really have to look at implementing these programs successfully from a parent-based focus. And if we don't do that, then we're going to go back and just go ahead and continue to trust a government, frankly, that I think has not been very trustworthy when it comes to the education of our children, particularly black and brown children. So, I mean, when you say that the parents are the way that we would measure success, if we think about successfully implementing the programs, we also do have to have this kind of conversation about the long-standing agreements that we have about young people need to show adequate progress, right, year over year. We want to make sure that kids are progressing. The traditional way that we have, I don't want to say known, but the traditional way that we have tried to measure whether or not young people are advancing or not is through testing, annual testing, you know, no child left behind put into place a lot of interventions and a lot of, some people would call them punishments. I don't know that I would call them that, but inducements for the system to keep trying to push all kids forward. So how does that interact, though, with this new kind of open world of just, you know, ESAs giving people money and parents will decide now? So I I really think it's important that we begin to have a conversation about what completion looks like versus mastery of a subject, right? You know, so I take a test or I know my job, right? I heard Dr. Fuller say yesterday, I know a lot of people who've passed a test and failed at life. A lot of people who failed a test and passed in life, right? We've put so much emphasis on testing as a society. And what have we learned from testing? Particularly from the last week of the NAEP scores, not a single person hardly could read in America. I mean, the scores are awful, particularly, again, for children of color, right? So if testing is our barrier for how good things are, then we have the lowest barrier in the world, right? And so we need to think differently, in my opinion, about what kind of competency, what kind of mastery do we want to look at? What kind of completion do we want to like? What is our goal? Is it goal just to pass a test or is our goal to have someone learn the material over time successfully? Now, can you measure that outside of some kind of nationally run reference test? I think there are ways to do it. I mean, there's portfolio assessment ways. You could certainly use different types of tests. There's certainly subject completion areas. So like I've always said, you know, what if my son could have passed high school math as a freshman, right? Passed every course from the beginning. And should he ever take another math course in the entirety of high school? Maybe not, right? But, you know, if you continue on this sort of standardization Carnegie unit way, Chris, we got to think about this differently. Look, I'm not anti-testing, but I am anti the way we're doing it now. We've got to think of a different way to set benchmarks and show high performance versus the way we've been testing kids in a sort of, literally sort of government manufacturing kind of way. So look, I'm not against it. I trust parents more than I trust the government, as you know. And I think there are ways that parents are going to find it to get to competence and mastery far more than they're going to get through a state test. Okay. So I'm going to challenge you on that because I care about civil rights and we have had a longstanding problem with the gaps being invisible to the system. And before we started disaggregating data, we just didn't know how many minority kids of all sorts, all stripes, we're actually getting washed up in the averaging of things, right? So disaggregating data became this kind of very useful civil rights tool. And it's really interesting, the left always opposed kind of like testing. And, you know, I had to always remind them every civil rights suit against the government for educational adequacy, the very first thing that they did in all of those lawsuits was pull the test scores to prove that there were disparities and show exactly where they were. That's how you sued the government, right? We've been suing the government in education for 50 years or more. And we've been using test scores in those lawsuits against the government because when nobody's in charge, no one's watching, what happens is 
the forgotten kids are the ones that kind of become invisible. So I'm not saying no one should watch, Chris, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have transparency. In fact, you know me, I'm a data nerd. Give me more data, right? If you're going to agree to say, I want to take this or I want to show this, then everyone should see it. I've been a fan, for example, if you're going to do these things, you should rank every single educational institution from one to a thousand based on three or four metrics, right? So like, let's say in Indiana, we have a thousand K-8 schools and they all take the same types of tests. And, you know, how are black children doing? How are, how are low income children doing? How are you should absolutely be able to, to see all that kind of data. Saying that testing and accountability should happen is not saying that I don't trust parents. It's saying that I just don't trust government to be the only indicator of those kind of completion and mastery statistics. There are other ways to do this. And if we don't implement ESAs, well, my biggest fear is that we will do all of these programs and we will lose parents because we, again, have become so top-down bureaucratic. Milton Friedman used to say this all the time. He used to call it the natural cycle of government intervention, right, that basically ends up not serving the parents or the people that they need to serve. So, look, while I'm for openness, for transparency, for knowledge, I'm not saying that we should be using these ESA programs to do a bunch of more what I would call top-down bureaucracy, which hasn't worked, right? No matter how much we've tried, it hasn't worked. So one of the questions, Chris, that I think ESA programs, and I think this is an open question, I think it's going to be very interesting, what's going to get us from here to there? How are we going to get from here to there? And I think ESA programs are going to offer a really interesting set of lessons. And remember, we're just in the first few stages of ESAs, right? It's going to be very interesting, right, to see where these things go. But the questions you got to ask yourself is, you've heard this story in Arizona, right? So, oh my gosh, parents bought chicken coops with their ESAs, right? There's a massive story about it, supposedly. And this is terrible. How is that educational, right? Except when you realize every public school in America has either a terrarium, a fish tank, or a chicken coop. I know public schools that actually operate goat farms, do produce cheese. Now, should a parent be free to do that kind of stuff as well to help educate their child on appropriate things? These are great questions. Here's another question for an ESA parent. Let's say you're a parent. You want to send your kid to learn woodworking skills because it's a massive skill. It's an important skill to have, let's say. And you take three or four woodworking courses. Those are valuable courses your child takes. That's an approved expense. Do you approve the saw? Is the saw an allowable expense for a parent to purchase in order to complete it? What's allowable? What's not allowable? These are the questions that ESAs are going to bring up that saying, do you trust parents to understand how to put coursework together for their children? Or do you think that it has to be done through some sort of centralized schooling structure? And I think that's where ESAs are really going to take us in a different direction. Yeah, I just got to say, I think that I trust parents' language is overwrought. Parents are in many different circumstances and situations. It sounds good. It feels good to say, I trust parents. And I've said it a lot. And it's definitely been one of my rhetorical things that I've like had in my portfolio of things I used to say. But parents are in all different kinds of situations. Kids are going to be in all different kinds of situations. Standardization just by itself is not bad. Having standards is not bad. Government has been very successful for a lot of people. So all the stuff I used to say about, oh my God, government has ruined everything and this has never worked and blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, in some way we start believing our own supply about that when in fact, like a, you know, good percentage of Americans actually came through the system that we hate so much and they occupy very high seats of commerce and business and government and law. And, you know, just look at all the places of people activity and they're full of people that came out of, you know, in some cases, some of these schools that are just outstandingly glitzy 
gilded public schools where if you went to look at them and you know you went and told those people they need something different they would kind of laugh you out of the room because they've got their you know they're overstocked you know some of the stories i've told before you've got 80 million dollar football stadiums at public high schools and places and you know so anyways this language of universally bad government universally bad public schools and universally good parents who are all righteous and noble and don't need child protective services or don't have high levels of neglect and high levels of kind of ignorance and not knowing. And, you know, not an insignificant number of like David Koresh stories where like some really weird things start to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah, so Chris, I can get it. And the language isn't to say that all government is bad. I mean, so Milton Friedman's original essay, as you know, was the role of government in education. And there's a discussion about what the appropriate role of government and education is. I think ESAs are taking us to that next level of what is that conversation? What is the appropriate role of government and education? Milton would say back in the day, Dr. Friedman would say, you need to have minimum standards, minimum acceptable standards. Now, that was never described because back then it was assumed. Right. You could assume that if you could read by third grade, you had met minimum acceptable standards. Nowadays, we have a whole bunch of curriculum, a whole bunch of standards, a whole bunch of testing. And none of that has helped us read by third grade. It seems a little faster. Right. So there's questions about how we currently use government to mandate and keep these standards. And so I think and it's not like all parents are perfect. But the question you ask yourself, I don't know if you know this, but in Arizona, you know what the fraud rate on the ESA program was last year? Tell me. Zero point. The year before was Mm 1.3%. You know what the SNAP benefit fraud rate is? Much, much higher. Much, much higher. So we should stop feeding children. No, that's not my point. Damn greedy kids. My point is, is (laughs) we trust families to feed their children, and we accept a certain amount of risk with those programs because we know that. Actually, you know what? No, in those programs, we do put limits. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of people in the right wing that would like to put more limits on what parents can choose when they have SNAP benefits, for instance, and what they can eat and where they can get it from. So those are interesting conversations. So when you look at a SNAP benefit review process, right, or a government review process, they do audits of, of like a, I think it was a million transactions they audited 2%, something like that, versus ESA programs right now. Their ESA programs are trying to review every single parent expense. Yeah, and listen, their new programs, I think they probably are going to unload a lot of fraud because I think that the people who are pushing these programs, pushing the laws through, have very little humility about getting them pushed through, and they want very little accountability in pushing them through. Now, this is just me, one guy talking. The wild west of things, as somebody who has supported school choice for a very long time, but I have learned lessons from charters and from other syndicates about how fools rush in. When you just do the million flowers bloom thing, you open up a lot of territory. And I think that one of the points that I agree with in the piece that you wrote is if fools rush in, you can do a lot of damage to the thing that you love. So it's one thing to get a law passed. It's another thing to want it to be sustainable and to work. And if a year or two from now, the public is inundated with gross fraud stories, gross abuse and misuse stories, entire segments of kids falling behind further in reading and math because they're going to all kinds of weird, wacky schools in people's basements. If that's what's in the news, I'm predicting right or wrong, that will be a windfall for people who oppose charters and choice and school reform and everything else. It will be the best thing that ever happens for them 
is for this to be done poorly. They will love it. So I think the done poorly, I agree with that last statement. I don't think it's the stories that will cause the problems, right? I think the done poorly problem is if you say you'll build it, they will come and you build it and no one comes or you build it and everyone who's coming is really mad and pissed off. Right. So if you're building something which is supposed to be a Ferrari and you're promising a Ferrari to people who want a Ferrari, to families, to low income families who've had miserable education for years, you know this. Right. And we'll talk about the charter stuff in a second. Miserable education for years. And you promise them a Ferrari and you give them a jalopy. That's going to really be a problem. Well, let's back up, Robert. Let's do the routine thing of what is an ESA? How does the program work? For people listening, how does an ESA work? So think about it this way. We as a society believe that it's important to educate our children. So we collect taxpayer dollars to do so. We collect taxpayer dollars from the federal, state, and local governments to educate children. In the case of traditional public schools, a child goes to a public school where they live and the money collected in taxes goes directly to that district. So it basically publicly funds go where they're assigned to go. In charter school programs, There's publicly funded money that goes to public schools anywhere that family wants to go, in or out of district, right? So charter schools are not assigned based on where you live. Private school choice programs, right, are public funds that follow a family to any private school of the choice that's in a program. So again, so it's public funds following a traditional school, a charter school, a private school. What ESA programs are and where they're different is they're public funds that get allotted onto a digital platform where the family can use it for multiple uses, not just public school, private school, or charter school, but for private school and tutoring, for special needs services and curriculum, for hiring a dance instructor because the child's going to become a dance leader in the world, as well as the best math curriculum, right? So it's allowing for this customization. It's allowing for families to come together and say, hey, 10 of us want to use this kind of curriculum for math. We're all going to get together and use it. It's allowing for much more customization. So it's public money that it could be used by parents for multiple uses to educate their child. And when you do this, when you become an ESA student, Education Savings Account or Education Scholarship Account students, you're essentially signing a contract with the state, an individual signing a contract with the state saying, I agree by accepting this money to educate my child. And you're putting the power in the hands of the parent to customize. And because you're using a digital wallet. So is that how the money comes to me? The money comes to you on a digital platform. Yeah. So in Arizona, you sign up to become an ESA student. The money gets put into a digital wallet that is run by Class Wallet, an organization. There are five or six organizations that run these now. And then you, as a parent, go on and you start to customize your child's education. And vendors are on that platform as well. And so you say, hey, I want to use this vendor or I'm using this vendor. And you check off a box and they send the payment to the vendor on your behalf, right? So it's a third-party platform. It's almost impossible if you have the right guardrails to be fraudulent with it, right? If you actually have approved expenses, it's impossible to be fraudulent. The question is what expenses you allow parents to choose, right? Now, you can set up a system where there's no fraud because you have to pre-approve every expense. Or you can set up a system where you say, I'm going to say no expenses are allowable until I approve them. Or all expenses are allowable until I find out they're bad, 
right? Those are two different ways to look at it. I tend to like the latter because I think I'd rather get rid of the bad ones and keep all of the other ones rather than approve every single one and have fights about every single one, right? Some of them are easy. I want to go use private school tuition. Well, that's pretty obvious, or I want to use charter school tuition. Now, tell me more about the charter school tuition because people keep saying this, but there is no charter school tuition. People keep saying you can use vouchers for charters, and I don't get it. Right now, teachers in charter schools could become tutors and take ESA students. So let's say you're a parent who wants, and this is not the case in every program, not every state is written the same, but the ideal world would be, hey, I would love to go to this traditional public school because they have an amazing math program. And they've actually costed out what it costs per class, much like they do in the units in college. And it's going to cost me this much for a credit unit. And so I choose that amount of money and go to that math class. I do a charter, same with the charter school. That I mean, ultimately, the goal here is to get to that kind of customization level where a family can begin to see, I want that part for that day and that part for this day and that part for another day, or that I just want to choose a school. The likelihood is like 20, 30% want to have massive customization and the rest want some sort of variation of hybrid and then about 40 to 50% just want a traditional school setting, you know. But as you're beginning to see, as you're eliminating sports, like you're allowing homeschoolers to come be part of sports teams, you're beginning to eliminate some of the arguments for socialization, right? So one of the arguments for traditional schools is you, oh, you have to go socialize in that one school. Well, you don't have to anymore, right? If you allow sports teams to be malleable. This last point that you made, I think is really important for us to talk about. So thank you, first of all, about how ESAs work, because I think we're talking in shorthand oftentimes to the public as if the public is steeped in these things. And I think these kind of programs, one, they're different in different states. And then two, you know, a voucher might be different than other school choice programs and ESA might be different, whatever. And it's good for us to kind of educate the public, like the difference between them. So I believe a lot in educating the public so they're more proficient in what these things mean so that they can have good policy debates. This last thing that you said, though, that there is a worry and a fear that the balkanizing of people, if ESAs are sold as a way for you to escape the diversity of traditional public schools, for instance, which has been my biggest and strongest. This is the thing that has stopped me from working with school choice people. The thing that broke me after years of being friends with school choice people from no longer believing that they had my best interest or my family's best interest at heart is that they are turning a blind eye to the fact that they are selling these programs right along with other very toxic anti-minority racist policies that are making the appeal to parents in what some people would say is the exact same way that Milton Friedman did. Go to the people who are against integration and say to them, this is a ticket for you to go to bigot schools. This is a ticket for you to keep your kids away from minorities that we all know we shouldn't be associating with. That's the old version. The modern version of it is get your kids and your people away from the gay people, from the Muslims, from the blacks, from CRT, from thoughts that make us uncomfortable, for thinking that we don't like, for all this kind of leftist, woke, blah, blah, blah. So suddenly what you have are not ESAs for the happy, rosy kind of picture, getting every kid to a seat where it's a tailored education for them. No, it's a little different than that. The sales pitch is the world has gone woke and to the left and all these civil rights people are out of their minds and you know the gays are forcing their lifestyles down our, our throats. And here's a ticket. Here's a bigot ticket. Here's a ticket to get out of having to school yourselves with those people. I don't think that that's good for American society as a, some would say it's unfair to call it an explicit pitch, 
of the new kind of faith-based right school choice stuff, but it is an implicit, even if it's not an explicit, it is not lost on anybody who pays attention that this program sold in Iowa, this program sold in Florida, and this program sold in Oklahoma and Texas with a very specific implicit appeal to people and lots of dog whistles around school choice, but we're going to prevent your kids from learning things that the minorities want them to learn. And those two things I can't hold. This is what broke me from the the movement is I have always been for school choice. I've never been for the educational censorship that is being passed right now, side saddle. So as I'm sure you know, Milton Friedman was absolutely opposed to the concept of, I mean, what, what you said, he would be opposed to this, that way of thinking. He, he believed that liberty led to greater equality. And that was his one of his main beliefs. He says a society that puts liberty first will get a large measure of both liberty and equality. One thing I want to challenge you about on this one, because obviously it's something you and I have talked about before. Our current system of government-assigned, government-run schools couldn't be more income-segregating and continuing of these kind of balkanizations that we've had in society forever. Right. The way we currently assign kids to traditional schools and by their house price has created a very balkanized society. In fact, that was the intention, some argue. Some will say that the way our traditional school system was founded was based on redlining and based on a way to make sure people who were poor and people who were black and brown couldn't get into certain schools. So if we're going to talk about what's actually happened with bigotry and racism, then you're going to be looking at our traditional schools pretty heavily in the way they're assigned. Number one. Number two, if you look at the data from the voucher programs that we have seen across America, right, and the choice programs, and if you look at, like, if you remember the old GLSEN study, the Gay Straight Lesbian Education Network did a poll on what kind of kids and how were they bullied in school, like gay kids in particular. Guess what school type they were bullied in more? They were bullied in our traditional public schools more than they were bullied in other private schools, and particularly religious private schools, right? So again, if we're going to talk about where bigotry and where this kind of stuff is happening, we know where it's happening in America, right? We know absolutely where it's happening. The third point I make on this is the data from Pat Wolf and so many other researchers on this has found that kids who attend scholarship program, private schools on a voucher often are more tolerant of other people's opinions and beliefs than the kids in their public schools, traditional public schools. Civic tolerance is a huge benefit to choice programs. It's uncontrovertible based on the evidence. Go look at the 101s of school choice on Ed Choice's website. Go download all of the studies. And what you find are kids who go to religious private schools are more tolerant of other people's faith, more tolerant of other people's ideas, more tolerant of other people's system. They volunteer more. They get involved in their community more. They vote more. To me, that kind of evidence, Chris, suggests that the way we are doing school choice, in the, at least up till now, and I believe in the future, has going to have a net positive on balkanization, not a net negative. Now, you and I can have go round and round about the sort of current structure, but in the end of the day, what I know is families and choice programs 
end up having a more tolerant understanding of people of different faiths. That's just the data. And I believe in it strongly based on what I've seen. And you and I both know the types of schools that have hurt black and brown kids for years, right? And so to me, I don't think that the school choice stuff, whether it's being sold, and you know, Ed Choice is basically saying, we believe in school choice, right? We believe that this gets solved when families have the ability to choose we believe that will lead to a better society, a stronger society, not a weaker society. And to have a stronger society, you need to have an, a set of diverse opinions where people have the ability to have strong civic discord and disagreement. We know that's not happening now. So, look, my experience of the history of this and the evidence of this is that we know where the, the failure of integration has happened. We know where the bigotry has been centralized, frankly. And we know that the choice programs have led to the opposite of that so far. So in my opinion, I mean, outside of this current stuff that we're talking about, the woke stuff, which, you know, I'm not engaging in that, right? Because Robert, what you just said is exactly why I left the school choice movement, because you're not engaging in it. Because you said a lot there, and I want, you know, I want to take them one by one. It has also been proven that integrated public schools has been the biggest kind of reducer of intolerance of Americans in the United States since the 50s. Between then and now, the number of white kids that actually ended up having to go to school with everybody else is what created a lot of the social progress in preceding generations afterwards. So the data that you just gave me, you want me to look at studies that are put out by school choice advocate shops that create these studies constantly that tell you that school choice you know, does everything great for you. It makes you taller, smarter, wiser, whatnot. But I am telling you that the largest body of work on this is that integrated public schools was responsible for a lot of the racial progress that we have made over the years. And private schools have in large part been very exclusionary to very specific minority groups. So they have especially LGBTQ students and families, which have no civil rights when it comes to private schools. So I don't want to get in a tit for tat on that because I think we could have you and we could have a public school advocate on and you guys could go back and forth about those things. But what you didn't say, what I needed you to hear and what I needed you to say, and the reason that I have left the movement, the laws that I am telling you that are passed along with these school choice laws in Iowa, Oklahoma, Texas, and Florida, the precursor to these laws, these anti-Black, anti-Black scholarship, anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ, all of those laws are objectively freedom-killing laws. They are state-sponsored educational censorship, and they are the greatest thing that is making school choice a fraud right now. Because for years, you guys have talked about educational freedom and liberty and justice and the Constitution and all of these things. And as long as you can get an ESA passed, you are happy to ignore the fact that my family, if we moved to Florida, there are things that my kids can't learn in that state, even though everybody's so happy to say, but you can pick a school. Well, we can pick a school, but even the businesses, private businesses, can't do DEI training, can't do what they believe is best for their workforce to make sure that their workforce can work together when they have very different populations. And for libertarians and for conservatives and anybody to miss 
how badly authoritarian those laws are, for me, is it's enough to break me from, it's enough to put in doubt my belief in those things. So you know I'm not a fan of authoritarianism in any way. One of the reasons I like ESA programs, Chris, I'm not a fan of authoritarianism. You know me well enough. I'm contrarian more than that. Look, my son... My son had special needs and, and he came from a blended family, right? And we went to Catholic schools. So in a Florida, state of Florida, let's say I want my son to learn about the origins of slavery and the origins of Rosenwald schools and James Baldwin and Richard Wright and all those things that I think are important. The ESA program will allow me to do that, will absolutely allow me to do that in a strong way. It'll allow you to do that if APA lacks studies has been gutted by the governor. After a battery of black scholars who have studied black studies for all of their lives, two centuries worth of expertise there, after that governor guts AP, you're okay with that? I'm allowed to go to the ASA program will allow me to go, for example, to get national curriculum that includes that stuff. If I want to do that, then I'm, I'm going to be free, able to do that. Why are we sidestepping? Why are we sidestepping white governors gutting black studies? Your organization is called Ed Choice. I want a choice. You know I'm not an expert on this. And so you know that my opinion on this at Ed Choice has always been very, we don't believe in the banning or mandating of anything. Right. We believe in the ability of a family to choose. We have been very clear about that. And we've said that for years. I'm not an expert in all these other these issues that you're talking about. I'm not. Right. And my personal opinions aside on those things. Well, here's the thing that you're an expert in. You're an expert in Milton Freeman. What would Milton Freeman think of outlawing CRT? What would be his take on that? Well, I can, can't speak for Milton. He used to yell at me, but I would I think he would want very rigorous scholarship. My knowledge of Milton was that one thing that would describe him and kept him who he was, was rigor. All due respect, Robert, answer it directly. What do you think he would say about a governor outlawing a thought system? He would not be for the banning or mandating of any thoughts. He just wouldn't be. Yeah. And neither would any libertarian who is an actual libertarian, right? Like, this is the thing that has broke me, is that libertarians are not living up to their values right now. Because they see a short-term goal, which is to get ESAs passed, they're willing to throw us under the bus on the way there. And I think it's unfortunate because that's not the way you have to sell choice to people. You could sell choice to people very differently than that without all that. Like you don't need that as window dressing to sell choice proposals to people. Choice could be good for everybody. It could be good for a lot of folks to have an option. It could be empowering, but it can't now see suddenly it can't be empowering for black and brown people if at the same time you're telling us we have a choice of a school, but you're going to outlaw our most revered scholars and scholarship and the way that we see civil rights and the way that we see the world, and you're going to outlaw anything having to do with other minorities, though. Isn't that ESA program then allowing you to choose something different from that then? No, because at the state level, you've outlawed DEI and CRT. You've outlawed that at the state level. So we can talk about school choice, but it's not learner choice. It's not education choice, right? You've outlawed thought systems, right? I mean, a private business in Florida now can't do diversity training. Again, I'm not an expert on private businesses, right? But I would say if you're a parent in Florida and you want to join a group of parents and create a curriculum around types of learning you want, you can do so. I believe that to be the case. And this is what I know to be the case, which is no one's looking out for black and brown people in Florida because this is the level of understanding that we have about what Ron DeSantis is doing and no one cares about us. So he can literally gut AP Black Studies, he can outlaw CRT, he can say, thou shalt not talk about things in race, our history, or gender in ways I don't like, 
And no one will say anything about that because of the people who are affected by that don't have anyone in power. They don't have large-scale philanthropies looking over them. They don't have a political party right now doing enough for them. They are out on their own. So my kids can have something removed from their library that is made for them, that is supportive of them, because four Ron DeSantis fans or four Kim, whatever her name is in Iowa or Stitt in Oklahoma, decide one day. And no one will say, wait a second, we're talking about educational freedom. So educational freedom means that we don't outlaw any of these things. That's actually in opposition. So we must either be one or two things. We must either be hypocrites because we're not really for educational freedom because we're outlawing entire parts of education or it's all marketing. It's all just marketing to get the thing passed. And remember, listen, I don't want to put this all on you. I'm, a, I'm one guy talking and this isn't on you, you know, but this is the way I think that we're missing the boat. I know that you've probably asked this of Neil McCluskey at Cato. I would be very interested in what he said in response to this. Neil's response to this is, which is very disappointing to me, which is also why I have left being a libertarian and won't identify that way ever again. His response is that I don't believe in the bands, but I'm okay with it because I know where it comes from. It comes from the fact that we have compulsory education that makes people go to school together, which naturally is going to make them fight. And because of that, I understand where these laws are coming from. My thinking on that is, boy, that sounds an awful lot like all the compensatory thinking that when people turn their heads as we were being lynched, turn their heads as we were having our voting rights taken away, turn their heads as every bad thing that has happened to us, there was a group of people saying, I get it though. Like I can rationalize it in my mind. And those have been not the best political friends for us, not the best political allies for us over time. I appreciate that. There are those of us who, I mean, your language obviously is very strong. And it's one of the things I love about you. You have very strong language, Chris. The conditions are stronger than my language. The things I'm talking about are stronger than my language. But you know what? So this is where the question that you and I can go back and forth on a little bit, right? It's people of character, frankly, hopefully. One, we know what's happening to black and brown kids in America right now in the education system. And we know who's to blame for it. We know who's to blame for it. We know that the compulsory system that has been not designed to serve the interest of individual families has caused a significant... You don't believe that. I do. It's not that I don't believe it. It's just, it's a deflection, Robert. It's a deflection. I am telling you something very specific is happening to us in policy and in law that is stripping us of rights that we fought for for a long time. And everybody that I say that to in the school choice movement is so okay with it so that they deflect to, well, yeah, Chris, but what about the unions? Chris, what about Randy Weingarten? And all of that is trying to get me to focus on some, I am telling you, stick with the objectively bad laws that are stripping us of rights that we fought for for a long time. That's bad by itself. And my understanding of ESA laws are, again, Ed Choice's position has always been we don't believe in the banning or mandating of anything. We believe in parent choice. But it's my understanding also that ESA laws will allow families to come together to teach and learn the types of curriculum they want and that works best for them. And anti-CRT laws will allow one white parent in that group who doesn't like the curriculum to say it breaks the state law against CRT, and they get public funds so that one white parent in that group of the other parents that have come together will use another state law against them to strip them of their right to do that if their child feels uncomfortable. If their child feels uncomfortable, because that's what the law says, no one should be made to feel uncomfortable and all that stuff, right? But you you get 10 families together that... You and I get our sets of families together. 
we agree to a curriculum that includes all of that, let's say, pro and anti. I'm all for that. Let's go get 10 families to do it because I think that's what's allowed under ESA programs. I think that's what's allowed. And if 10 families could do something different, right? And if I believe the data, and it's not by data by ed choices, data by academics, not from ed choice institutions, but from actual academic institutions, that says that civic tolerance and civic behaviors get better in those kind of environments, then it strikes me as if you have parents doing one, getting educated in one way, you have a group of parents doing other things, then it's actually going to be better for society. Well, here's the thing. You have a divinity background, Robert, and you have a big heart and you like to believe the best in people. And you like to believe that people are essentially good. I think you're a Rousseauist at heart. There's another side of the fence that doesn't think everybody lives up to their best intentions and their best whatnot. They're better angels and everything. And I'm more suspicious of these things. Right now, what we're seeing, real evidence is what we're seeing is gay teachers are being fired in these red states, these red school choice states where everything's about freedom. Actual black educators are being fired for showing Selma in their classrooms right now. And the ESA isn't going to do anything for me to help me with that right now. And the ESA isn't going to do anything to prevent gay teachers from getting fired right now or gay kids getting turned away from private schools or the private schools who have fired lesbian teachers and all that stuff. That's not going to stop happening because we have a a lot of happy talk about ESAs. So what I am saying is school choice people, if your only goal is to pass an ESA as a policy, then whether I agree with you or not about some of the benefits of that, you are still insufficient as a friend and an ally to communities of color, marginalized people. Because marginalized people need people when you're being strung up on a tree, they need people just to say that objectively is bad. I'm not going to deflate it with any kind of other language about this, that, or the other. It's not the unions. It's not the traditional system. It's not the because systems enroll each other and there's compulsory education that makes people string us up on trees or fire gay teachers or fire black teachers for showing Selman classrooms. It is not because of unions or teachers or the school system that that happens. It's because there are objectively bad actors who want to be president one day. And the way that they have found to ascend to higher places right now is by dog whistles, racist dog whistles and performative policies. And school choice has allowed itself to co-mingle with those anti-minority performative policy proposals. That's a shame because it never had to be that way. But I think that school choice folks are so horny for victory. They have waited so long for victory that they have gotten so cheap in what they want. They have lusted for this so badly that they will do anything to get an ESA passed. If it means they have to stand with somebody who is stripping black people of rights and votes, they will do it just because they have been so lustful for a win for ESAs for so long. And this is their moment. It's their watershed moment. And it's a shame that I can't enjoy that with that group of people because they chose the wrong team. These are super challenging questions and issues that I do take seriously. And I think the movement should take more seriously. But I'm going to try and come alongside the Sarah Carpenters of the world from Memphis Lift and do whatever I can to help her. The Benita Bradleys of the world up in Detroit, the Gwen Samuels of the world and come alongside them and do everything I can because they're the ones on the ground living this out with their babies every day, as they say. And so, so to me, Like if I can help them do what they're telling me they want to do, which is get more options for families, 
in the United States, I'm going to do it because that's what people like Bernita, that's what people like Sarah, that's what people like Najima, that's what people are telling me, right? But Robert, they're also going to tell you that they want to vote and they don't want their kids killed by police officers and they don't want like the savage inequalities in their world and in their life and in their systems that people like the Heritage Foundation and other people that you're going to align with are going to not be consistent with. Like we can raise the name of the Sarah Carpenters of the world if we want to. But even that gets a little performative because at the other time, I'm not talking about Sarah Carpenter on the ground. I am talking about governors who are passing laws that are going to hurt Sarah Carpenter and her children and prevent them from reading the things. You know my opinion on my friends at Heritage. I do not believe they're racists. And you know I believe that, right? Do I believe in everything they do? No. Do they believe in everything I do? No. Do you believe in everything I do? No. The key thing is over time, Chris... Who's fighting alongside whom? And I believe that our organization, and I guarantee I can prove it, our organization, and I hope in the future forever, will continue to try and fight alongside communities to try and do these things, even if we do it imperfectly, even if we do it in a way that we need to learn from. Because in the end of the day, I do want families on the ground to have more choices from the hell that they've had in their lives. Not just education. It isn't just about education. I know that, right? We all know that. Anyone who has half a brain knows that, right? So what are you thinking when you see black books get pulled off of libraries that Sarah Carpenter's family would want to read? I don't think any books should be pulled off libraries. You know me. Yeah, but what do you think when you see it happen then? So Chris, the only books, and then this is, again, I'm stepping outside of my realm and lane here. The only books I'm concerned about are the ones that potentially over-sexualize children. I'm really concerned about those. And I frankly think if you poll the black community on some of those books, you're going to see a different perspective than you have and a different thought on that, to be honest with you. Oh, you think my opinion is not reflective of the black community? No, because it's not monolithic. No group is monolithic. I've seen polling that says black families are far more conservative around issues of gender than other groups, right? So what do you do with that? Look, That's outside the lane. And I know you're trying to push me down that lane. And as a person, I'll go down there and have that conversation. But my first job is to make sure that the families that Sarah and Bernita are trying to deal with have options that will save their kid's life as quick as possible. Because those lives right now in education are not being saved. As we come to an end, this is what I'll say about that. Because you are a friend. And listen, I have stopped being friends with many people on your side of the fence. So you're like one of the last remaining folks that I consider a friend on that side. And we don't have to agree on everything. I don't like the using of Bernita's name and Gwen's name and Sarah's name and talk about awfulizing the conditions of their children and saying that ESA is the thing you're working on to make it happen because the one thing that will also save their children are books that are appropriate for them, books that were written for them with them in mind, lessons that allow them to understand their history and understand America's history in ways that's good for us, that our scholars have decided is good for us. So for me, it's an objective bad that we have school choice governors who as part of their school choice educational freedom portfolio are also passing anti-black restrictions that prevent Bernita's children from learning what Bernita wants Bernita's children. Now, I know Bernita personally. She is not being saved by an ESA right now. They are still going to remove things that are good for our kids, specifically because it wins votes from white people. It is racist and bigoted. And listen, I get the not wanting to call people racist if you're not a victim of racism. If you're not a victim of racism, you're suddenly it's all cloudy. I don't know who's a racist. I've never seen racism. Like what would qualify? They seem like good guys to me. Listen, I don't care about good guys. I care about policies and laws that get passed. And in all these red states that are passing these so-called educational freedom packages, we have to read 
the fine print. And that's all I would say to my own people. I'm not speaking for everybody else. What I would say to my own people, thinking people of color who have studied this nation's marginalization of our people and have studied the ways and the tactics and uh, the ways laws get passed in the Reconstruction era, post-civil rights era, to roll back our freedoms. It always comes with some special, super clever name and some clever way of selling it to us. And we are buying smallpox blankets. We are buying something that covers us and makes us ill at the same time. And I just wish it weren't true, but it is true right now. So all of this celebrating of the victories of ESA's passing as one discreet policy is a smallpox blanket in my mind. That's one guy talking who used to believe in all of this so much. And the reason I believed in it was because I believed that it was a way of liberating my people. I didn't believe in it because I thought that it would help get my kids away from other people's kids. I get it. I hear you, Chris. I appreciate you saying what you're saying. I appreciate hearing that. And obviously, I appreciate what you said. I love the victories for, I think, positive reasons. And I appreciate your point on that. One of the saddest things for me this year is that 9,000 kids in Illinois will lose their choice because politicians on the other side of the aisle don't believe it's okay to give kids, black and brown kids, the chance to get out of traditional schools that are failing them. So I hope you'll join me in criticizing the folks in Illinois who just stripped 9,000 kids of their ability to choose, mostly black and brown, while we're having the conversation about the other states. Because, you know, I look at what's going on there and I'm terribly saddened. And I'm terribly saddened that we have seen the test results of the last week. I mean, just, it's just, it's the reason I keep doing what I'm doing, Chris, is because like all the arguments that we're having now and the back and forth, I'm watching kids who can't read get less able to read and less able to understand critical thinking and your conversations, you know, included in all that. I'm trying to do this to stop that from happening. And do I think we've been successful? And I'll quote Milton Friedman, not nearly enough, right? I don't think we've been nearly successful enough to get real change for real education. One of the things I think would be helpful to end on, what does the future of education look like if it were me drawing the board up? It would look like a system where families have access to all types of learning curriculums, all types of learning opportunities, everything that can get in the sun, the largest libraries in the world available to them online, everything they can learn at anything, any possible time. And they do so in a way that's customized to meet their needs. That will lead to a society of a stronger child and more successful lives where children have the ability to self-actualize and self-learn and be critical thinkers and have the ability to interact with each other in a critical civil society. That's my future of education. And when I believe that ESAs or other platforms won't get us there, then I absolutely will be criticizing them. Right now, for me, the evidence is they're not. And we have the long way to go. There's no doubt about it. And many of these issues you bring up are super important and serious. So please know that I consider you a colleague as well. You've been a good sport, man. I appreciate you, Robert. We've always had very good, strong conversations, and you've been a good sport, and yeah, take it in stride. I know I have strong opinions about this. I meant to have strong opinions about this because I think that these are very important policy battles that if we get them wrong, they can just double down on some of the hurt and harm that has happened to the people I care about, which is my people in this country. And I don't feel like we have all the best advocacy and advocates aligned for our interest in the way that white kids have advocacy aligned for their interest. Their entire, entire 
philanthropies that are really working on what's good for white kids right now. I'm going to leave you with one thing, and I don't usually tell this story, Chris. You may have heard it. You know I got lucky. I got born to a family that had money and had access and opportunity. And I went to educational opportunities through no merit of my own, it felt like. And I struggled when I saw no black and brown families in those schools. Struggle mightily with the injustice of that. And it struck me immediately, you know, the first way I did it is my mom and I started a scholarship at Stony Brook for making sure low-income families from New York City could go out to Stony Brook. Next way we did it is when I went to Seattle Pacific, we started a scholarship so single black mothers could get access to Seattle Pacific education. And then I realized it wasn't enough, right? You have to change the nature of power. So I do what I do because I'm trying to change the nature of power. Now, that's what I feel. That's how I grew up. That's why I'm doing this. And I struggle every day now being part of a group that's been working successfully for a long time, right? And changing the nature of power is why I do what I do. And I think it's important for your listeners to know that because I don't want the same structure that we've had over the last 200 years to be the same structure that we have in the next 200. And so I want more black and brown ownership. You've heard me say this a thousand times. That saying, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. If you teach a man a fish, he'll eat for a life, right? I don't care about that. I want to know who owns the pond. Because if you own the pond, then you're creating wealth, you're creating jobs, and you're creating ownership. So how do we get to that? That's why EdChoice is working on entrepreneurship in the black community. That's why EdChoice is working on these things with Emory, because you have to change the nature of ownership. And we're trying to do that. And I strongly feel that ESAs are one way to get there. Is any policy perfect? God, no. But we better implement this one well, because it's the closest, I think, opportunity we have to truly change the nature of power that we've had in a long time. It's not perfect. And there may be some other things about it that are associated with it that I have questions with which we can talk about offline again. But this is the reason I wrote that piece, Chris, because I think we have the opportunity with this kind of program to truly begin to alter the structure of power. I'll leave it there. I appreciate you, Robert. Thank you for coming on. And for people listening, this has been Robert Inlow, President and CEO of EdChoice. And you can find them at edchoice.org and go check out more of their studies and things that they have put out. I don't mind having spirited conversations when I disagree with folks. Folks know that I'm like on a holy tear right now about the choice movement. I think it's wrong for us and I think it's wrong for people of color. I think the clearest deciding factor for us to know that as people of color is something that objectively wrong is being done to us in state laws and they have nothing to say about it. And that to me is the clearest evidence that they are not friends of ours. I might be friends with some of them, but they are not friends of ours. They will watch us get our rights taken away from us by the very governors that they're celebrating and retweeting, and they will do nothing as it happens to us. And if they'll do it on these policies, they'll do it on a lot of other policies. They have broken their friendship with us in that way. We need people who show up for us as people of color who have had our rights marginalized and taken from us at many different decades, many different times in American history, who show up and objectively say, I'm not going to talk about everything else in the world. I'm going to point to that and say that's wrong. And because they can't do it, they have proven to us that that will happen again and it will happen again. And the more that we start marching towards our rights being taken away, there is no education coupon that anybody can give us that's going to stop us from being able to stop us from needing to fight those bigger 
fight because we are losing our rights and we have friends that are silent about it. When Dr. King wrote Letter from a Birmingham Jail, he didn't give it as badly to the right wing as he gave it to the people. He said, my friends that have been silent are the ones that I'm going to remember most. That's the most painful thing. That has been my journey in school choice and the school choice movement is to watch my friends be silent as their preferred politicians strip us of rights that we fought for, our rights to our mind, to our intellect, to our scholarship, to our books, to our understanding of the world, to our vision of history, to our own understanding of the country that we live in. And it has been outlawed for the benefit of white voices that are very, very antagonistic to minorities. I still believe black people and brown people can benefit from having educational autonomy, which does fit within the school choice movement somewhere, somehow. But I don't believe they can have it with this school choice movement. They need their own because, listen, education censorship will never equal choice. It will never be educational freedom. You will never own your brain if you have governors outlawing what you can read to put in your brain. Just think about that for a little bit. As always, I'm glad that you guys come and you listen to these spirited debates. Some of you write me or call me. Some of you agree with me. Some of you agree with Bravi. Some of you agree with the guests that we have. We have a range of guests, but we want you to keep letting us know what you think. And the best way to do that is one, you could call us and leave a voicemail at 321-213-9171, or you can send us an email and tell me how mad you are about the thing that I said, or how much you support me or don't support me or support my guests more than me or whatnot. It's a big world. We're the United States. We're a pluralist country. We can all believe different things. So shoot me an email at citizenstewartshow at thebranchmedia.org. And let's argue about it. Let's fight about it. But whatever, let's keep cool heads about these things. But let's always be fighting for a better country. Appreciate you guys as always. Share the show widely with your friends and family. 